Welcome to House of Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from this past Sunday. For more information about other messages or events at House of Hope, visit www.ihope.today. Hopefully, 
the prophetic and healing and all the supernatural gifts that we've been trying to teach and guide and navigate and discover of our own. And so what I wanted to do this morning, without any warning, is to ask you, five people in this particular congregation give them a prophetic word. You probably need a microphone for them, don't you? You just wait. So either you can volunteer yourselves to get going, or we'll just go down the line.
Standing mostly. What's your name? Thank you. 
child? Is it someone's child? There you go. My son. That's awesome. these guys. Thank you so much. I'm sorry I've been on the spot. I'm not that sorry. <laughs> and last but not least, Chris, can I have you to come up to the front? Chris was talking to me before the service about um, after speaking last night, I talked on back on denial and uh, the power of the woman at the well and the beauty of the fact that she was honest about her journey with Christ, which meant that he could go further and um, um, in order to teach guide her and obviously release her from all of the shame she'd been carrying. And so Chris is sharing something with me last night. I'm like, would you mind just sharing a little bit about that from the front? Because it's actually going to tail into what I'm speaking about today.
Would you mind just praying over everyone? Because if you're going to encounter us like that during the middle of the night with the Holy Spirit just talking to you constantly, I think there's an invitation for the rest of the congregation to do the same thing. I do want you to sleep, but I also want you to encounter the Lord in this kind of way. So, yeah. younger than me, 
dinner with a 55-year-old. He was 27. He had three kids, and I had such a stillness about him. And I'm like, what is it? Because he's passionate, too. So it wasn't that he was passive. It wasn't that he just kept his head in the clouds and just was constantly doing prayer devotions. There was something else going on with him. But he continued to navigate life and relationships all day, every day, with a wisdom and a holiness I hadn't felt before. Whenever he spoke about the Lord, I felt like the Lord had come in and sat down at the front row listening to his son talk about him. The presence on him was huge. And I remember stories of other people talking about people that carried the secret place or essentially their prayer life. And there was this one particular story where a man, a very well-known man of prayer, had gone into the airport with his wife, ready to check in and ready to fly off somewhere. And he handed over his suitcase to his wife and said, can you just hold this for a moment? Walked back down the line embraced this man, and they started just having this very deep, sweet conversation with each other, hugged each other, almost had a little cry, and then he came back to his wife, and she said, do you know him? And he said, no. Excuse me? He said, no, but I know he's a great man of prayer. My mother had said something very similar when she was a Baptist minister, and she was at the Baptist World Union Conference in the late 60s. She had basically walked back to the restrooms, had thousands of people there, She'd walked to the back of the restrooms, and uh, as she was coming back towards the seat, she could feel the presence, the heaviness of prayer somewhere in the back of this congregation. She looked around, and she saw Martin Luther King, and they connected, and he went to her because she knew that she'd seen what was on him. There are people that carry this stuff, but it's not a gift. It's not an anointing. It's a choice to be in a relationship. And the secret place isn't necessarily a daily Bible devotion. Of course, some of that's always wrapped up in it. But it actually has to be a constant, continuous conversation throughout your day. It's what marks and changes you. And I didn't know how to handle or, or deal with the Christian virtues when it came to things that angered me, hurt me, the bitterness I was carrying, the upset I was carrying through the tragedy of my life. And so when I lost my father when I was 23, very suddenly to death, I also had another four consecutive deaths just after that. So in 18 months, at the age of 23, I'd gone through five very serious, very upsetting tragedies. By the end of that time, I was praying to the Lord, but I was feeling nothing. I I remember one particular day where I was waiting for the sun to go down in the hope that he would just show me something. I could feel him or witness him or experience something, but nothing. And it was that day that I actually reached out to a friend of mine, a very brave friend of mine, who was a preacher, and he was a dear friend of my father's. And I said, I need you to tell me why I should still believe in God. Because right now I don't feel protected by him. I don't feel covered by him. I mean, it's textbook stuff, right? Why has this been allowed to happen to me? I've been a good Christian all my life. Why is this stuff happening to me? But the reality was, he actually sat me down and said, you know, I actually think you need to start your faith again. I said, What? I was hoping he'd convince me, give me some good stories, some good philosophy. He was a philosopher at Cambridge and a great theologian. I'm like, come on, let's have it. Four hours in the hotel. Let's go. Just shove out and over coffee. And he said, yeah, I think you need to just let go of God for a bit. And I went, what? He said, well, it seems to me that you're questioning whether this faith was yours in the first place. Because your parents brought you up on it. And I went, yeah, that's probably true. It was a very brave move. I wouldn't necessarily advise this for everyone else. But it really did fill the Lord over me and knew that I would always do what was the right thing rather than the honest thing. And because I hadn't been taught necessarily about the secret place or a relationship, an intimate, honest conversation with the Lord, I ended up walking out of that hotel deciding to be an atheist. I spent the next two to three years trying to disprove the non-existence of God. I read every literature, every book. I would hunt Christians in pubs, in public domains, and try and argue them under the table as to why there was no such thing called as God. I mean, it actually very, it still deeply upsets me because this is my best and finest friend that I was talking about here. But in my must have broken his heart so many times over those years, watching me denounce him constantly my own bitterness. How many of you understand that bitterness, sexual sin, and hallucinogenics are the three deadly doors to open? We're often so very vocal about sexual sin and hallucinogenics, we're often not very vocal about bitterness. 
is as deadly as the other two. And that was what eating me alive and taking me onto this journey of atheism. However, I was still very obsessed with kindness and nobility. And nothing was teaching me in regards to the atheism realms why I want to love someone and be loved in return. No book, no Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, no Voltaire could tell me why I wanted to love someone and be loved in return. They could easily talk to me about chemicals in the brain, but that didn't explain my motivation for it. It doesn't explain why my dog just wants to be pet and he doesn't want to travel around the earth like we do as astronauts. There's a reason why we are the way that we are, and I need to understand that. And so I became obsessed with the kind of, of course, you've got to understand, I knew the Bible. I knew the Bible, I knew the Word, so I couldn't go to the Word necessarily for the same answers. Now I was looking for honest, with honest questions, with different answers, but with the same result, hopefully to come back to the Lord. And so I was reading, I was reading reports, historical reports about Christ outside of the Bible, things like Josephus, those kind of historical, historical reporters that were talking about Christ at this time talking about the fundamental impact that this guy was making and the kindness in which he orientated himself in. I wanted to know how he was so often talking about his father and how his father knew the very details in his life. That was the part I didn't get and didn't understand. And so when I finally got, I, I kind of went through this journey of trying different religions, I was trying different things, I was trying to think about reincarnation, and then I stepped on a snail one day, and I thought, that could have been my dad. That doesn't work for me. His wife was looking up me. You know, I just... So I just knew that those things weren't going to work. And so this whole idea of, you know, and of course I've got friends who thought, you know, they're the same. Polynesians, aren't they? They're all the same. No, they're not. Um, only because, um, only one chooses to be a father to me. And so I had this very honest conversation. You've got to remember I'm working in the film and TV industry as a journalist as well. And I'm chuffing away on cigarettes in the back of the garden somewhere in a nice British summer. And I basically go, Lord, we haven't spoken for a long time. <laughs> and um, I was just wondering, you know, I've just been thinking about this whole Jesus thing. And um, I, I just, I remember talking about the details of my life and you saw me at my father's funeral. You saw me looking at the coffin going, how is my dad in that? I don't understand it. And you saw me watch on top of the coffin the flowers start to shake about 15 minutes into the funeral and this tiny little white butterfly came out of the, out of the flowers I write this in the book, out of the flowers and goes up and over my head and into the steeple of the church and I think, I'm, I think I'm hallucinating by this point. But other people have noticed it in the congregation. And I thought, I think I'm supposed to remember that for some reason, but I don't know why. Cut to this moment in the, in the garden. So listen, here's the deal. If you really are this father that sees the details on all of our lives, I'm actually going to need a really good sign for that. And I'm going to need a really, really specific good sign I know that you've been watching me this entire time. Never mind created me. I close my eyes, exhale all this disgusting nicotine smoke out of my mouth, and I feel something on my nose, I open my eyes, and it's a white butterfly. And I go, oh, that was good. <laughs> that was really good. Noted. That was the beginning of me coming back to the Lord. It was certainly baby steps, though. I wasn't like, I'm clean and pure and wonderful overnight. We definitely had a journey coming back. And I was very stubborn. I was very arrogant by this point. I didn't want to be told what I should think or feel because I was so scared of going back to how I used to be. So it was certainly a journey, but it wasn't like I said until second year until I started to realize I'd numb myself an awful lot with painkillers and in the sense of... Um, unhealthy relationships, codependent relationships, that I ended up actually uh, numbing myself from the real pain that I was still struggling with, which was still carrying the grief of my father. And I blamed myself for some of his death, which I didn't realize until I'd come into battle and I was doing, you know, I'd finally spent all of this time with Sanjay doing all this kind of unlayering and forgiveness. And 
You know, so this particular day, I'm, I'm at church, Jake Beach is preaching, and at the back of the church, I get, for the first time, now we're talking now, what, 18 months of running after the Lord full time, if that makes sense. For the first time, I feel this conviction come all like jet lag, just switch through my body, and I hadn't felt conviction forever. I'd perhaps justified myself or just got on with things. The conviction isn't necessarily a sense of condemnation, it's actually time to celebrate, because I was now getting to a part of my Lord that he could now trust me with. Conviction is a time for celebration, it's never a time for condemnation. It's a beautiful time to And I, I felt this thing of like, my gosh, my Lord, I just noticed I've never just done a hardcore confessional session. All the things that I think might still be harbored somewhere in my subconscious. And it's stopping me from loving people well. It's stopping me from letting people in. And worst of all, I'm only determined by the amount that I allow you to come into my heart. So I run home. Unfortunately, I lived on my own. Because I went into this wild, I was like tearing clothes and I was pumping up the worship music really loud. So then I was going, I stole money from my mother's purse when I was seven years of age and then I spent it on Q-tips and I realized for an hour this is going on for, you know. And I was like naming these guys that I kissed inappropriately behind the bike shed and it was, I mean, it was interesting. No, and I think the Lord, I think, I honestly, there aren't many times I can shock the Lord, but I think on this particular occasion, I think he was like, have you seen Carrie? What's going on there? What do we do with this at this moment, exactly? So, I was waiting for a sort of large moment where he goes, um, by the end of my kind of weeping and confession, he what do you need, child? You know, I was waiting for that sort of booming voice. Um, I forgive you. And instead it was a, hey, I was really surprised. I thought I'd have some large forgiveness ceremony. I thought, you know, angels will come down with a cloak or something. But instead, it was, what do you mean? Like, like a proper dad, you know? And I went, I just, I think I just want one more moment with dad. Now, this isn't necromancy. This isn't me trying. This isn't the grave sucking stuff that we're, like, that we're affiliated with. It's not that. <clears throat> That's a different day. No, I'm joking. And, um, large straws. I'm joking. We don't. I just want one more moment with my dad. And so, I'm lying now on this. I think they had, like, an American flag on the floor, I think. I don't know why that was important, but we had one there. And I could feel all the angels had their backs all the way around my apartment as if they were protecting something. Never felt that before. You realize that the enemy is incredibly intimidated by intimacy. He doesn't understand it, that's why he's the enemy. But he's terrified of it because he sees the fruit of intimacy. And so the angels were protecting me and my Lord from this conversation of anything else. And so I come out of this moment into what feels like probably the strongest open vision I've ever had in my life and ever since. But it actually changed me dramatically for the rest of my life. And I was up on what I would say a valley land, a sort of shadow land. The C.S. Lewis talks about the valleys. And there's this winding road and there's this sort of object that seems to be moving more and more closer to my direction. My dad was a big biker. And every time he ever talked about heaven, he would talk about the big motorbike workshop in the sky, which you can understand didn't seem appealing to me. So I had to have a different version of what heaven was. But the Lord basically put me into this position. I saw this object. I was standing alone until all of a sudden my dad rocks up on this platinum motorbike. He dismounts. He goes, Kelly, what's it been, like five minutes? And I'm like, no, Dad, it's been like ten years. And he doesn't, he kind of doesn't phrase by that. It's not phrased by the time thing. So I was playing with my hands, and I'm like, I don't I just, I'm super serious. And I just, I just want to say I'm so sorry that we never got to say, I love you again. And last time I spoke to you was two weeks before you died, because it was the first time we ever had an argument. And I said some things I really regret saying to you now, and 
da, 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 da. He's completely ignoring it because he's just so happy to see me. And then all of a sudden, he snatched me out the case on motorbikes, rock up. So I'm like, oh, you've got a gang. Good for you. <laughs> and they're all on platinum motorbikes. And I'm like, who are these? Who are these? Can we have a show? Okay. So they're like, hey. I don't know who they are, but they're so happy for my dad in this moment. And then my dad stops me and he said, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. He said, do you remember we used to dream all the time about the Lord and our God and who he is and what he does and we used to dream about heaven. He said, it's not a bad thing that he is. And I need you to understand how much he fights for you on a day-to-day basis. The glory of what he carries for you is nothing that you will ever be able to understand until you get to here. He said, but I was just your temporary father. And you've got a job to do, kid. To go back down there and tell them about the glory of him. Because they'd stop blaming him. They'd stop being mad at him. Because he's fighting for them much more than they understand. And something just left. Like this heavy grief of ten years had just gone. He sort of dismounted on back onto the bike, not dismounted back onto the bike, and then he flicked the flicked the pillion of the bike, and he went, by the way, the material is much better up here as well. <laughs> Winked at me and drove on. And that was the day that my Lord and I really started to have a relationship. I'm telling you all of that because I want to look at Matthew 6, 6, and basically how the Lord teaches us to pray. Because there's something that I used to do before this moment, that I used to come to the Lord in a sort of polished prayer life. If anything, it sounded very Shakespearean. In fact, sometimes it often was just Shakespearean. <laughs> if we shadows have offended, think of this and all is mended, but you have but slumbered here whilst these visions did appear. Harry, is that Shakespeare that you're talking about? It's supposed to sound like that. Thanks, Dad. I never brought myself to the table, which was the very way he designed me. And he can interact with the very design that he made with us, you know. He didn't design me to recite Shakespeare on this particular occasion. It's like, and I think what the Lord is trying to go for in Matthew 6 6 is he was so done with the hypocrites, the ones that were fasting publicly, the ones that were praying out loud publicly. Because it's like, you don't ever do this behind closed doors. Make out you're a Christian, but you never have a conversation with me. And I actually do feel there are times where I have students come up to me and go, Ken, what do you think about this? And I'm like, well, what does the Lord say? And then I'll go, come back when you've spoken to the Lord. You've forgotten. You almost don't trust your own voice. And I think sometimes we're scared of going into the secret place because we're worried that He won't answer. We're worried that He'll condemn us on some level because our experiences of going to leadership or authority and being quite terrifying. We're worried that it's going to bring up some stuff about us that we don't like. But if you're with the finest, most tender friend that you can ever imagine, one that often teaches you a lot in comedy, (laughs) I found, in the journey of life, it's the first place you want to go to. It doesn't mean you get to hide behind it. That's important. I've had people like, I spend hours in the secret place. I'm like, you don't spend any time actually encountering real life. You're hiding behind it too. I know the Lord's very safe to you, but I don't actually believe that you're changing in the secret place, and you should be. The secret place is supposed to change you and shift you. It's supposed to bring you wisdom, understanding. You go in bitter, you come out kind. You go in mad, you come in understanding. Does that make sense? Matthew 6, 6. But when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. They think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. Um, there's this lovely story of I don't know, how many of you have ever heard of a missionary called Helen Rosevere? She was British, 
worked in the Congo in the 60s. I don't expect many of you to have won. One, two. Well done, because I only heard about this woman a couple of weeks ago. So, and this was all in research. So she basically had gone through some heinous experiences, beatings, rapes, when she was taking captivity and hostage. She was uh, working in the Cong- Congo for a lot of her life. And she had, she was a nurse, she was, had a hospital right in the middle of nowhere. And um, this particular story she shared pretty much echoed how powerful prayer can be. She had an orphanage attached to this hospital as well. So on a particular occasion, a mother comes in with a two-year-old daughter and her mother is giving birth. The mother, the mother dies during the birth to a screaming two-year-old girl that has witnessed this entire thing. It's a sort of carnage. The equipment is very, very limited. Even though it's on the equator, it gets very cold at night. And so they just had a fire to keep the baby warm. They also had one hot water bottle in the hope that if this baby would stay alive, it needed to have a hot water bottle. One of the midwives comes in crying because the hot water bottle had burst when she was filling it up. So now we had nurses lying against the drafts of the door whilst keeping the baby as close to the fire as possible in the hope this baby was going to survive. The next um, couple of hours, she speaks to the children, Helen does, and she always had prayers with the children every single day. And she talks about how she presented this problem to the children. There was this one sweet little girl called Ruth who was 10 years of age, and I'm going to read this out verbatim because otherwise I'm going to get it wrong. Um, But she came out, Helen tells the story, and so Ruth decides that we need to pray. So Ruth says this, please God, she prayed, send us a hot water bottle, it will be no good tomorrow, God, the baby will be dead. And Helen's like, okay, a little softer in the prayer, if you could. Not quite as direct or harsh, you know? Yeah, she was kind of appalled at the audacity of how strong she had been praying this prayer. However, there was grace because she was 10 years old. So please send it this afternoon. She, she wrote this. Well, I guess inwardly the audacity of the prayer she added by way of corollary. And while you're about it, would you please send a baby doll for the little girl so she knows, she'll know that you really love her. That's a faithful 10-year-old. <laughs> because why would anyone send anyone to the equator a hot water bottle during the middle of summer and... It's out in the middle of nowhere. Any parcel that was sent to this hospital would take months. That afternoon, a car arrives. No, we're going with this story because we're in a testimony culture. That afternoon, a car arrives. A big parcel is dropped off, and uh, all the all the all the little children come out from the orphanage. And Helen gets the word that there's a car that's delivered a parcel, and so she's opening it up. And there's wrapping and bandages for the epilepsy patients. There are um, uh, sweet little um, recipes for. Uh, current bun recipes that she can make for the children. And Ruth is there hoping that the hot water bottle is in this parcel. She's, she's adamant it's in there. But they're getting further and further down to the parcel and, and there's nothing to be seen. And so Helen finds right at the very, very bottom she can feel rubber. She brings out a hot water bottle and Ruth is losing it. And Helen can't quite believe it. Now Helen was good in the secret place. But sometimes when you're really lacking faith, you find someone that's got more faith than you in the room. How many of you understand those with the most hope in the room have the most influence? And so then Ruth goes, well, if you send the hot water bottle, he would have sent a baby doll for the little girl. So let's find that. She finds a baby doll. She said, can I come with you and show it to the little girl? And so there's this beautiful moment, and here's what's stunning. In the secret place somewhere in England, a woman was praying to the Lord, and the Lord said, send the hot water bottle because Helen Rosevear is going to need it in five months' time. There's something about your prayers that you don't understand when they'll manifest, and you don't know when they might be needed. But I need you to, I've seen a lot of tears on the roof. I need you to understand that your prayers are heard. It may not be in your timing, but it's always in His. And so, my charge to you, how long we've got, five minutes? I charge to you is to really look at how you 
the secret place is doing. It changes every year. So I had one student come up to me and say, I just don't know how to do this. All I know is to read the word and pray out loud. That's all I know. And I said, well, I actually had to learn it too at the age of 33. I'm only be doing it for 16. And I said, the way I started, honestly, was, um, and I had another student also say, I never really heard anything when I was trying to have an honest conversation. And I said, no, that's probably true. But I said, just try consistency for a start. So I actually put an empty chair in front of me each morning with a cup of tea. And I would start talking as if Jesus was sitting in the chair. And of course, people walking past my apartment asked me, go, she's, she's crazy. She's talking to herself. For an empty chair. Um, but it was almost a prophetic act to go, Lord, I actually want to change my conversation with you. I want to be normal with you. I want to be honest with you. I want my prayer life to just sound like a continuous conversation. I think it's honestly why Jesus' prayers are so short, because he was continuously talking to the Lord. And we don't see or hear the audible of all of that. We just hear little microchips of it coming up occasionally when he was praying for people. I also think this is why the Christ was so swift to the responses of his emotions in his heart. I'm always, and I said this the other day to Jeff, I'm like, I'm always fascinated as to why when Mary is crying over the dead body of Lazarus, why Jesus cries with her. Because he knew that he was about to raise her from the dead. So why is he crying with her? There's a compassion in the secret place. There's a union of, of mourning with the mourning. That is actually, it designs the compassion to actually invite the miraculous to come. And I'm not joking. If you can actually get this conversation, not right, but honest, but you, you'll start to see the miracles come up in your life. You'll actually start to have greater wisdom in certain circumstances. You'll actually hear his answers on things. This isn't a place to vent. This is a place to seek his wisdom. And so there are times where people are venting, and I just spurred it all out to the Lord, and I'm like, so what happened? Why didn't you say anything back? Okay, you didn't ask him a question then. Secret place actually asks a lot of questions. This has happened today. I don't understand why this is happening, or how is this affecting me? The Lord will go, it's affected you by you've put some walls up now. Now now all of a sudden you're going to say you're not going to trust men because you had this interaction today. It's a little bit extreme, Kay, you've got to calm down. <laughs> and sometimes he does talk to me a little bit, you know, directly like that. I need it sometimes. Okay, so how do I find compassion for him? Well, he needs to also understand this. This is all he knows. This is all he's been modeled. And so he probably needs to have a slight shock of kindness from you or tenderness from you to just change the game. He too has not trusted any women. And now you're putting walls up, you're kind of confirming the point. How I act with other people has no definition on what they've done to me. It's who I've chosen to be from the secret place into the real world. So I might I might pray like a pauper, but I choose to pray and be kind in all encounters. And so my heart for you is this. You get out of chair. <laughs> if you need to start again, get out of chair. Have a cup of tea and just start talking to the Lord as if he's sitting in that chair. As if it's a Monday morning, you're just catching up. How are you doing? And one thing I said to um, my boyfriend the other day, we were driving somewhere, and I said, you know, I find myself more and more asking this question when I put my head to sleep. I go, Lord, what made you laugh the most today? And what made you cry the most? Because the things that made you laugh, that'll bring me joy. I love seeing you laugh. I love making you laugh. Daughters love making their parents laugh. But also, whatever you cry, the hardest thing, because I, what I love about the secret place is he's waiting for us to say yes. He's not a cool dad. He's not an agenda. He's not a controller. He always wants to give you the choice. And tonight I want to talk about the opportunity, finding opportunity, because I think we always expect the Lord to just encounter us all the time, make decisions for us. Protect us from everything. There is a co-laboring that I think we as a church need to get better at because he's always giving you the option. One of the reasons why I left the church was thinking, not really understanding that God is free will. The beauty of God is the encountering relationship when you're saying yes. And so when I'm in this moment with him and I'm asking him these questions, then I come out in a way that may always be a little bit more suffering to the self, but I don't regret it a year later. Does that make sense? 
And so in this conversation in the empty chair, three months I was doing that, I didn't really feel anything back. But after about three months, it's almost like the Lord's like, oh, she's serious. This isn't just a fact. This isn't just a trend. She is actually serious about these conversations with me. And I'm not joking, the encounters in the angelic started to go off the charts. The prophetic got much better. Some of you are like, where do we have the time for half an hour when we've got four kids growing up? You know, that's real. You've got, you, the secret place is different for every single one person. All I want you to know is never switch off the conversation. Okay. Would you stand just for a minute? I just want to pray for you. Psalm 25, the secret of the Lord is those who fear him. This isn't with an intimidation, Lord, this is a reverence of just how glorious those conversations are. And Lord, we're so in love with you. We'd do anything for you. And I ask you to ignite the hearts once more for new conversations, for new encounters, for dreams in the night and dreams in the day for the miraculous to start showing up in Cranbrook, the signs and wonders to be better and more profound than ever before because of the intimacy that goes on behind this secret thing. Lord, I ask that we just become our true selves with you, that all performance is gone. And I ask for wisdom, for clarity, for a full trust in themselves because they finally learn how to trust themselves in the secret thing. You've invited them to understanding who they are. The very details on their life, Lord, I ask that you fill them up with the designs of how you made these people so they can go out and be effectively, so they can raise the dead effectively, so they can, they can cleanse the lepers effectively, so they can heal the sick effectively. Lord, I ask that this secret place isn't just for our own needs, our own wants, but it's actually to glorify your name. wipe all fear in this church that this is the church on the hill that are the fearless ones, the brave ones, the bold ones because they got stirred and filled up by you in the secret place. Let this be a marked day, Lord, for something new. Let this not be just another sermon, another person from Bethel, but that you are encountering today in ways I've never experienced before. In Jesus' name. Uh, it's like we're all in a secret place. Mm. I'm sitting here, I'm spreading the ball just because I feel his presence. And so um, I want to be you know, mindful of, of, of the secret place in our lives right now. And, and so if you need to sit and just enjoy that, that's great. Just feel, feel free to that. But if you need to, we, you know, we're going to break. We're going to go for lunch. Small lunch. You know, we just want to be quiet for a while. And so if you feel you need to go, that's fine. I just want to sit here in his presence and just enjoy it. That's that's totally cool too. So there's not going to be any ministry team or anything in here, just you can be the ministry team. And just enjoy that. So as you feel like just leave, we'll see you tonight. Thanks for listening to our sermon of the week. Our desire is that you will be changed by the love of the Father and the power of his presence. For more information about House of Hope, visit us at www.ihope.today.